You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Daniel chapter 3 verses 1 to 6. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the councillors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the councillors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before that image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Donna. Uh, g'day, everybody. If you haven't met me, my name is Luke and I'm the pastor here at City on a Hill, Melbourne West. And uh, as Chloe mentioned, we're going through this series, Left and Right, and today we come to the topic of freedom of religion. Uh, really looking forward to this. And it's a little bit different tonight as well. Uh, we're going to have a question and answer time, a Q&A time after the sermon. All right, let me pray. Father God, we thank you that uh, your word is true and relevant and here for us in all times and all seasons and about all matters. So I pray that you'll give us clarity and insight tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what would you do? What would you do if your freedom of religion was completely taken away? If you were forced to worship someone or something that you didn't believe in? Well, that's exactly the situation we find in our reading today. In Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon makes his great big idol, 30 cubits by uh, 60 cubits by 6 cubits wide, 30 metres by 3 metres wide, and he demands that everyone bows down and worships it, or really worships him. It represents him or else. Verse 4, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. It's the choice that is no choice, bow or burn, worship or die. Of course, everyone goes along with it to protect themselves. We're told in verse 7 that when all the instruments came out, everyone fell down and worshipped, except for three men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. See, these three men are Jews and they know that this is not right. They believe that God, Yahweh, is the one true God and the only being worthy of worship. And so they refuse to worship Nebuchadnezzar's idol. They don't seem to have a particular problem with Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar specifically. They just want the freedom for religion without coercion or consequence. But they're not being offered that. There's no tolerance here, no respect for others' beliefs, no constitutional protections. There's no freedom here, no freedom of religion. So what will they do? How will they respond to this moment? What would we do? Or even what will we do? 
You see, as we continue our series today and we think about freedom of religion, this feels like one of the most relevant and pressing and personal questions of our time because we are in a moment of history in, here in Australia and in many parts of the Western world where there is a growing sense that we are losing our freedom for our religion. Uh, the Australian Christian Lobby reports uh, about the, uh, the Human Rights Law Alliance. Since 2019, they've received over 250 inquiries and acted for 40 Australian clients who've been fired, investigated, harassed and ostracised because of their religious beliefs. In the UK, David Dr. Macarath, a doctor for more than 30 years, lost his job after he refused to use someone's preferred pronouns. Appealing this, he said that this was contrary to his uh, freedom of thought, conscience and religion, but a judge ruled against him, saying that a lack of belief in transgenderism and conscientious subjection to transgenderism, in our judgment, is incompatible with human dignity. There's a host of stories like this in the United States. In Atlanta, the city's fire chief, Kevin Cochran, was sacked after he wrote a men's devotional book in his own personal time in which he briefly spent some time uh, speaking about his own conservative views on marriage and sexuality. Of course, we've also heard about uh, controversies around people uh, with same-sex marriage and, and people feeling uh, wanting to press for the freedom of conscience so that they don't have to provide services for a same-sex marriage. And so uh, Jack Phillips, a baker in Colorado, was sued because he didn't feel comfortable decorating a cake. Uh, Baronel Stutzman was a, a grandmother and a florist who was sued for not providing uh, flowers for a same-sex marriage. I was amazed to read about the story of Trinity Western University. It's a law school in Canada. It's part of a, a Christian tertiary college and, and all students as they join this school sign a community covenant where they pledge uh, to not look at pornography and to uh, seek to honour the Bible's view on sexuality. Uh, but this was seen as inappropriate by uh, the local law societies and they refused the college accreditation. So basically, if you... If you go to that college, you can't be approved as a lawyer. They appealed this, they took this to court. Uh, the original British Columbia Court of Appeals found in their favour, arguing that it was important to have a free and democratic society where different views were heard. That sounded like a win for freedom of religion, except the story doesn't end there. The Canadian Supreme Court overruled that uh, lesser court saying that the school's code of conduct would deter LGBT students from attending the college. Uh, here in Australia, we have a lot of debates around religious schools. There are, of course, laws against discriminatory hiring practices. You can't uh, be biased or bar someone from a job because of their own uh, religion or sexuality. But it's long been understood that there should be some exceptions to this rule, that a church, for instance, or a Christian school should be allowed to employ only Christians, or a Muslim school should be allowed to only employ Muslims. It's about maintaining uh, the ethos of that institution. To just be like a, a climate change organisation wouldn't employ a climate change sceptic, for instance. But those things are under threat now. There's attempts to remove those special considerations, or to drastically limit them. And here in Victoria, we face the reality of new laws spanning conversion therapy and gender suppression. Now, as I said earlier, previously, uh, over the last few months, I don't disagree with everything in these laws. There are certain types of conversion therapy that truly are wrong, 
aversion therapy, for instance, or seeking to exercise people for, from their gay spirits or to pray, the, pray away the gay against their, against their will. That's hurtful, counterproductive. As Christians, we can't force change on someone. Only God can do that. So I understand why those things are being outlawed, but the law goes much, much further than that. Under these laws, it's illegal to carry out a religious practice such as praying with someone, even if it's that person's expressed desire that you pray with them. Let's say, for instance, someone comes up after the service to our post-service prayers and says, look, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. I, I, I want to I seek God's help in all of this. I'm not comfortable with it. Can you, can you pray that I'll maintain my purity and so on? It would be illegal to pray with them. That would be considered conversion therapy. It's the same with the other part of the law, the gender suppression. Uh, say, for instance, a, a young girl wanted to uh, change gender. If a doctor did not affirm what they were seeking to do, they could face criminal charges or a parent, perhaps, if they, if they urged caution, could be sued as well. And the penalties for this are substantial, fines of up to $500,000 or as much as 10 years in prison. I think the uh, Christian group Freedom for Faith is right when it describes this law as the most aggressive action ever taken by an Australian government to attack freedom of religion. And so the question of freedom of religion has become a very real and significant one for us at this time. And so today I want to look at it in detail. First of all, I want to think about why is it happening now? Why is it sort of intensified? And what should we do about it? First of all then, why is this happening now? I think it's because Christianity challenges the ruling religions of our day. So the big idea I want us to see throughout this series is that politics is the battleground of the gods. That's what the writer Jonathan Lehman, uh, that's how he describes it. And I think it explains so much about the passion that we see in politics. You see, everyone is religious, Every one of us worships something. We look for something to give us meaning, to give our lives purpose. And, and those, those gods, even the atheist has this, even the secularist who would imagine that they don't have a God is really, they're looking for something that gives them a worldview that makes sense of this life. And all of us, these gods shape how we view the world and how we approach everything, how we think society should work. And so we bring these gods into politics. As Lehman puts it, politics serves worship and governments serve gods. Politics is always religious, whether it's understood as that or not. And right now, the ruling gods are secularism and the cult of self. You see, secularism is, is the desire to remove all religion from the public square. And I think it's in itself a religion, the religion of no religion, as we saw last week, it stems from Genesis 3 and the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve are tempted by the thought that they can be like God. They believe a lie that we as humans don't need God, that we can be God ourselves, that we can define good and evil for ourselves without reference to the Creator. And that's what drives secularism in politics. Really, it's about trying to remove God from our society. Remove him from the way that we think about the world. And if we can do that, that makes space for the deeper God, the other God, the God of self. This is the age, Robert Bella writes, of expressive individualism. Uh, that's, 
the belief that at the core of each person there is this feeling and instinct that is guiding us and to be truly our, true to be true and to be true to ourselves we have to listen to that instinct and follow it you've got to truly be yourself and there should be nothing to stop you that's the god that's all around us at the moment that's what we're constantly being told on TV and advertisements, everywhere. We're, we're being told, you choose how you live. You be you. You define all of those things for yourself. And crucially, anyone who tries to stop you doing that is seen as oppressing you. And so they have to be removed. And that's why freedom of religion is being curtailed. You see, Christianity challenges the God of self. The Bible says that we aren't our own gods, that all authority lies with God above. He's our creator. He is the one who defines good and evil. In him we live and move and have our being. And that also means that he gets to decide and define what we do with our bodies, everything about us. And that's very confronting in this age. Just, just take this verse in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I mean, all of that verse just smacks up against the culture of our age. You are not your own. Your body is belongs to God and it's, you're here to use that body, to use your life to glorify him rather than just pleasure yourself. And so it's no wonder that Christianity is opposed. In the desire for freedom to be ourselves, we need to take away freedom from religion and Christianity. So what do we do about this? I mean, that might sound like a strange question because surely our instinct is we've got to fight for it. We've got to defend our freedom of religion. But I actually want to suggest that there might be a few reasons why we wouldn't do that. There might be a few things that would make us pause before we do that. And three things. And the first is it makes us look really bad. Uh, the US politician Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, also known as AOC, has said that the only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Like you'll often hear this, won't you, that when we argue for freedom of religion, we're arguing for the right to say things that people would find offensive, to say that homosexuality is wrong, for instance, or to say that transgenderism is contrary to what God's plan is for us. People see these kinds of ideas as oppressive or even dangerous, that it will lead to people having shame or even hurting themselves, or there might be hatred against them because of what we're saying. And so one of the commissioners in the Colorado uh, wedding cake uh, case said to me, it's one of the most despicable pieces of rhetoric that people can use to use their religion to hurt others. So defending freedom of religion is seen as defending discrimination. Now, what do you, what do, you do when you hear that? See, some of us may feel really uncertain in our beliefs. Oh, perhaps, perhaps that's right. Maybe we are wrong here. Maybe we need to look at the Bible in a different way. Maybe we're, we're behind the times. We need to update the Bible. We might be tempted to modify our beliefs. Or even if we're confident of our beliefs, we might be wary about publicising them. We might think, okay, I, I believe, I know that this is right, but it's making us look terrible, so perhaps we should retreat 
perhaps we should withdraw from the public square and accept a smaller place in society. And in one sense, that's exactly what we're being offered. You'll often hear a distinction between the freedom of religion and the freedom for worship. What's the difference? Well, freedom of religion means that we can hold our beliefs, our ideas, and bring them into politics and to help shape the society. But freedom of worship says, no, 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 this is not a public thing. You're allowed to believe whatever you want and do that and worship God however you want as long as it's in private, in the private of your home or the privacy of your church. And so perhaps we should just accept that. Perhaps we should just accept a smaller place in society, accept marginalisation, or even perhaps we should accept persecution. Because here's the second thing which might make us pause before we defend religious freedom, and that is that the church doesn't need religious freedom to prosper. Uh, See, there's an argument that says that Christians should accept persecution because it's kind of our natural state. Jesus warned us to expect persecution. Uh, John 15, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The Apostle Paul said something similar to Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And you look at the disciples, how, how they experienced persecution. In Acts 5, 41, we're told that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name of Jesus. I mean, here they are standing up for their faith and and being persecuted because of it, but they're not fighting for freedom of religion. They're actually rejoicing that they can be counted part of this uh, difficulty. And so perhaps it's almost unseemly for Christians to demand religious freedom. And you might even go further and say, well, particularly so because the church seems to prosper whenever it is persecuted. Tertullian, writing in the second century, famously said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and that is proven true again and again. I think that's because when it's hard to be a Christian, then true Christians decide that they will be firm in their faith, and that has a profound impact on the world around them. You see, if someone is willing to die for Jesus, then others look at that and think, well, maybe Jesus is worth living for. And so perhaps as the church, we should just accept that, suck it up, even embrace our difficult, marginalised place in society. And then the third reason why we might not uh, pursue freedom of religion is a little more philosophical, and that is that freedom of religion means freedom for false religions as well. See, if, if I'm demanding freedom of religion for us, Surely I'm also seeking freedom for all religions too, right? I mean, I can't just say Christianity should be free, but all these other religions, they can't be free. And surely that raises some questions. I mean, we believe that there is only one God, the one true God, and that we should only worship him, second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So is it wrong for us then to create a space in which all the false gods can be worshipped as well? So John MacArthur, a preacher in America, says religious freedom is what sends people to hell. To say I support religious freedom is to say I support idolatry, is to say I support lies. And so perhaps then we should accept the limitations on our freedom to protect against other freedoms, worse freedoms, to protect people from false religions. So I say all this to point out that there might be reasons not 
to defend religious freedom. As Tremper Longman summarises, neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament suggests that religious liberty is a right or even necessary for God's people. My point, he says, is not that religious liberty is a bad thing, only that it can be dangerous for the church as it gives a perception of special treatment and furthermore is not necessary for its flourishing. And yet for all of that, while I can see those arguments, I think there are much better reasons for us to defend religious freedom, religious liberty. And in a nutshell, I put it down to this, that we should defend freedom of religion because of the inherent dignity of humanity, the sacredness of an individual's conscience, which is something that no government has a right to interfere with. There's a lot in that, so let me unpack it. First of all, this argument rests on our view of human dignity. Humanity is this most precious and extraordinary thing. Genesis 1.27, we are made in God's image. We're made after his likeness. That means lots of things, but at the heart of it is this idea that we are given a conscience, we're given moral reasoning, we're enabled to understand what is right and wrong and to live according to that. That's, that's central to what it is to be a human. And that means that we need to be free to follow what we believe is right. It's right at the core of humanity, that conscience, and so we should be allowed to live that out. I think we see this in Scripture. Writing to the church at Rome, the Apostle Paul speaks at length about the value and importance of each individual's conscience. We should do what our conscience dictates, Romans 14. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And then he says, whatever does not proceed from faith or conviction is sin. And so he says that everyone else should respect the conscience of the other people around them. Verse 13, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So we we should treat the other person as valuable. We don't want to break and dishonour their humanity by forcing them to do something they don't agree with. And I think it's verses like that that have inspired Christians to be at the forefront of fighting for freedom of religion right through the ages. So Tertullian, again, he said, it is a fundamental human right, a privilege of nature, that every man should worship according to his own convictions. And this is actually an example of how Christian thinking has shaped the world for good. We talked last week about that. That's our goal, not necessarily to rule through the state, but to shape and influence the state positively. And here's one of the examples where Christians have had a positive impact through the centuries. So Article 18 of the UN's International Convention on Civil and Political Rights reads that everyone shall have the right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion. That's a positive value that we have. And that has implications for everyone, in particular the church and the state, firstly for the church, because of our view of true religion. We should never try to coerce people into Christianity. As I said uh, last week, Christianity is something supernatural. It's this radical change of the heart and the mind and the will, which is only possible if God does it. Just what Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again or born of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So true religion is heart religion. You can't fake that. 
And crucially, you can't force that. And so we would argue for freedom of religion so people can believe or not believe or even believe the wrong thing. See, this is why I'm in favour of freedom of religion for all religions, not just our own. The human conscience is so important that we should protect it for everyone, Christian and Jew, Muslim and atheist. Now, of course, there's some sort of risk there, right, that they might believe the wrong thing. But in the risk, it's worth it because they can also believe the right thing. I found Andrew T. Walker very helpful on this. He's got a great little great book called Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom. And he speaks about how, when to, he says, to allow for people to come to a saving knowledge of faith in Jesus Christ, we must leave room for people to believe, in er- to believe error. We have to continue to keep and preserve that space where people can hear other ideas and assess them and discern for themselves and pray that God will lead them to the truth within that. He says, we can converse, contend, plead and work to persuade every living person that God is the one true God, but because every person is made in the image of God, they should have the right to discern who God is without other people or government infringing on that. And so that also points to our view of the government's role in God's world. The writer Christopher Kinsinger writes, a biblical understanding of religious freedom begins by accepting that God has entrusted the state with a specific limited type of authority. We've seen this over the last couple of weeks, that there's kind of spheres in society, that God has set up the church, the state, the family, all of these things, and they're separate spheres. Sometimes they overlap, but God has set it up. That's how he's ordered this world, we believe, And each sphere within that, there's different roles and responsibilities. I think the role of the state is to create a a meaningful space for living. That's the phrase we've been using. That means they need to provide safety for the citizens of that place. They need to ensure justice and the punishment of wrongdoing. And then they need to facilitate prosperity, creating an environment for economic and social well-being. And I think God has set it up this way. Romans 13, we're told that all governments, all earthly authorities are instituted by God. And so we should honour them in the right way. Verse 7, pay to, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. But even as God is calling us to do that, he's also setting the limits. See, if the authorities are instituted by God, then God is also instituting the limits of those authorities. Think about what Jesus said in Mark 12, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He's saying, pay Caesar what he's due, taxes, but don't give him more than that. Don't give him what he wants. Don't give him worship. He doesn't deserve that. And so in the same reasoning, The state should not mandate or ban religions. As Russell Moore puts it, human government has no jurisdiction over the souls of humankind. You see, the society has, uh, the, the state has got great power instituted by God, but he limits that authority as well. In fact, I would argue that it's the state's role to make space 
for the church and for religion. You see, becoming a Christian is a relatively simple thing. Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Like that's all that needs to happen. Someone just needs to hear the gospel, respond to that. But then Paul goes on to say, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So once the message is out there, the response is clear. But if a government is trying to stop that message getting out there, then they're defying God. See, God has this desire. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that all people could come and hear the truth. And so when a government steps in the way of that, they're defying the role that God has given them. They might not agree with that. They might not agree that that's their role. But that's how God sees it, and that's how he will respond to them. 1 Samuel 2, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Like, this is God's demand. That's how he will judge governments. And so really the role of the government is to make it possible for people to hear the truth. We get a glimpse of this in 1 Timothy 2. It's on your sheets. Paul is praise. Uh, Paul says, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you see there? God desires for all people to know the truth. And so he wants to make that possible. So he says, pray for the governments so that they enable you to live a peaceful and quiet life so you can get on with your business telling the gospel and people can respond. Jonathan Lehman writes, God intends for governments to build platforms of justice, peace, order and flourishing for all their citizens so that the people of God can get on with their work. And I say that as a kind of reminder to us not to glorify suffering. You see, God can and does work through the suffering of his people, but he's still outraged when it happens. Yes, it is true that the blood of the martyrs is, has often been the seed of the church, but it's also true that at other times it's crushed the church or limited it. To give you an example, in the 14th century, the Mongol emperor Tamerlane uh, pillaged the continent of Asia. It's estimated that they uh, slaughtered something like 17 million people. That's a full 5% of the world's population at that time. Uh, and as part of that, many Christians were killed. And more than that, they became far more wary about proclaiming the gospel. And so Samuel Hugh Moffat in his book, A History of Christianity in Asia, says that God's people were uh, compelled, prompted to compromise evangelistic and missionary priorities for the sake of survival, just to stay alive. So there's an example of where uh, denying freedom of religion, crushing the church, actually limits what can happen. As Andrew Walker puts it, for the gospel to advance, it needs a pathway, and that pathway is religious liberty. And so I think we should seek to defend freedom of religion. 
because of the dignity of every human being and our understanding of what the role of the state is and because ultimately we want to create a pathway for the gospel to be proclaimed. But in this last kind of 10 minutes or so, I want to think about how we should defend freedom of religion. You see, it would be really easy, it is easy for us to do this badly, to come off as arrogant or entitled, demanding rights that we would never extend to other people, or to do it in a spirit of panic and fear, thinking that if we don't have this freedom, everything will be over. But as I've said, it doesn't have to be like that. So, so how do we do it the right way? What, what does it look like to do it the right way? Well, the first thing is I think we should be a praying people. God calls us to pray for our leaders. In that passage, 1 Timothy 2, pray for kings and all who are in high positions. We should pray for them, whoever they are, whichever party they're in and however they treat us. I mean, this is a tough gig that they have. They have to balance all of these different things. They work incredibly long hours, hardly see their families. It must be very, very tough. And so I love this prayer from the Anglican prayer book. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, send down upon those who hold office in this state the spirit of wisdom, charity and justice, that with steadfast purpose they may faithfully serve in their offices to promote the well-being of all people through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And so I think it's right for us to pray for our leaders and to pray in particular that they would continue to provide freedom of religion. And where we feel like they're not doing that, where they're stifling us, I think it's appropriate to pray that God will intervene. I call this the the 3R prayer, repent, reduce or remove. Uh, When there are ungodly leaders, we, we should pray, first of all, that they will repent that God will convict them of their sin and turn them from being an opponent of the gospel to an advocate. We should pray this in faith. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. In fact, in Daniel chapter 4, we see that in the most profound and glorious way with Nebuchadnezzar. So we should pray that they will repent, but then we should, failing that, we should pray that God will reduce them that he will reduce their power and influence so as to protect God's people and the gospel witness. And if that's not the case, then we should pray that God will remove them, that they'll be voted out or exposed for sin. Daniel 2, he changes times and seasons. God removes kings and sets up kings. He can do this. And I think it's important for us to pray those three things. You see, it might feel a little bit uncomfortable to pray that Someone will be reduced or removed. But, of course, if you read the Psalms, there's all kinds of prayers like that. Psalm 59, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Later on, make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. And and they're just the nicest phrases. And yet I also think we need to watch our hearts as we pray that, that we don't become vindictive, that we don't relish praying for their removal. Remember what Jesus says, Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So let's be a praying people. And then secondly, obey wherever we can and disobey whenever we must. You see, God, the sovereign Lord, has instituted 
government and we must respect that. But we also need to honour and acknowledge the higher authority, God himself. And whenever those two things come into conflict, then God wins. Just think of the disciples. In Acts 5, they're hauled before the authorities and told that they must stop preaching about Jesus. And they just say, we must obey God rather than men. It's really simple and clear to them. God is the higher authority. We follow him. And so in our situations, we need to decide to do that too. Where there is a conflict between human and divine authorities, we obey wherever we can, but disobey when we must. And in doing so, we entrust all of that to God. And that's what I love about the example from our Bible reading of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They face a king who's greater than you and I can ever imagine, the most powerful man in the world, ruling not just a democracy but an empire. And there's no way to vote this guy out. There's no way to have a say. There's no political lobbies. He was treated as a god, quite literally, and no other god was allowed. And yet these three men still stand up to him. They don't do it arrogantly, but they do do it with a humble sense of defiance. Their speech to the king is incredibly inspiring. Chapter 3, verse 16. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. They're basically saying, look, we're firm in what we think. If this be so, if we must die for our faith, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. See, before this great king, they acknowledge a higher authority, the king of kings. They're confident that God can save them. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. And yet they recognise that he may choose not to. But if not, and even though, even with that, they're still resolved to serve him. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. They trust God absolutely. They trust God's power and his wisdom. They trust that God can deliver them and they trust that he's wise if he chooses not to. May we be the same. See, I believe it's right for us to pray for and pursue freedom of religion for ourselves and for others. And yet in those seasons where we feel like we're being challenged or it's being taken away from us, we don't panic we don't compromise. Instead, we trust God and follow him. He can deliver us, but if not, we will not serve these other gods. And so finally, I want to suggest to us that we need to live as free people. See, at one level, all of this is academic. We may have freedom of religion officially or legally. We may be fortunate enough to live in a time and a place where, we can, uh, where we're allowed to pursue our religion and to bring that into the public square. But even if we don't have that, or even if the state tries to stifle that, they can't ultimately destroy it. It may cost us, but still within our hearts, we can still worship God. 
and we are always free in that sense. And when we truly grasp that, then we cannot be bound. Just think of the example of the Apostle Paul. We first meet him in Acts, and he is Saul. He's known as Saul, and he's persecuting the church because the message of Christianity came up against his gods, his gods of seeking to earn his way to God, his, his old views of religion and all of that stuff. They were confronted by Jesus and the gospel message, that he too was a sinner, that he wasn't perfect. And so he tried to silence this. He tried to destroy Christianity. He didn't want freedom of religion for God's people. But then on the road to Damascus, he meets Jesus himself. He's convicted of his sin and he discovers forgiveness and grace and it completely transforms him. He finds, he discovers freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, freedom from fear, freedom from even the fear of death itself. And so when we go on and read his accounts, his letters, we see this extraordinary man who's learned how to have joy in all circumstances, who's been stoned and imprisoned and beaten, often near death, and yet he still has this profound love and joy and freedom. So even when he's in prison, he's saying, pray for me that I can keep telling the gospel. And so we see him contribute to the, the, the conversion of the Philippian jailer and so on. Like even when he is bound, the gospel is not. In fact, that's exactly what he says in 2 Timothy 2. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. That's our verse right there. That's the one to take away with us. 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember the one who has come to give us forgiveness who died for us but has been risen from the dead, who defeated the grave, who could not be held down by death itself but was free to rise because he'd done all that was required. Remember him as preached in the gospel and even if you're in chains, know that the gospel is not bound. And if we get that, if we truly understand that deeply, that Jesus has come to give us forgiveness, that we are now free from our sin and our guilt, that we are free even from the fear of death, that nothing can bind us. Truly we are free. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, this uh, topic. So much in here that we need to learn about and think through. We thank you that we have lived in a time where uh, we are free enough to proclaim your truth. And so many of us have responded to it. And Lord, I pray that that might continue. But even if that is limited in different ways, we pray that we might be courageous and faithful and humble, trusting you to provide for us. Lord, may your name continue to be glorified. May your gospel go out. We thank you that the gospel can never be bound. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we had some uh, good questions come in. Hopefully I can provide something approaching a decent answer. Okay, first question. Jesus said that believers will be persecuted and even to turn the other cheek. Are we called to stand up for our beliefs in the teaching of Christ? If, if we are religiously persecuted, should we always fight for our freedom on everything or associated? When must we disobey? I think that's really asking the question, like, 
do we always, yeah, do we always fight for our freedom of religion? I, I think we uh, need to do what we believe. We need to follow our conscience. I think that's imperative. I think that that uh, is ultimately the kind of guiding point for us. We have that human dignity and we need to try to uh, protect that, to, to not go against that. Um, I think there are, though, there are times where we might consider what are the key things for us to work through and to be sure that when we're making a stand, it's for something that is really worth it. Uh, to give you an example here, there was a lot of debate in Christian circles during the lockdowns. So Hebrews 10 says it all, you know, do not give up meeting together as God's people. And so during the lockdowns, I, I had someone ask me, like, at what point are we going to defy the government here? Like, we should be doing this. We should be coming together. And I didn't think that we should for a couple of reasons. First of all, there was a very strong sense that we were all in this as a community and that, uh, you know, you'd kind of have these, I don't agree with this, but there was a lot of photos in the newspaper of, oh, these people are at the beach and we were kind of shamed for breaking the community covenant so to speak, that we should all be locked away. And so it would have looked really bad if Christians were kind of uh, deliberately disobeying things in that context. But the other thing was I didn't think that it was a deliberate attack on religious freedom. Now, if, for instance, things had changed and they'd opened the cinemas and the theatres and other indoor venues and they didn't allow churches to meet, that would have been a different thing. I think that would have been the moment to say, well, we're being clearly victimised in this moment and so it's right for us to disobey that. Uh, you know, if the, if the health advice said that everywhere else could meet but we weren't allowed to, that would be a clear kind of infringement on our freedoms. And so I think that would have been the moment to do that. Uh, but I think we really have to consider what are, the, what are the hills that we're dying on? Let's make sure that we're completely convinced in that. And one of the ways to do that is to actually have a cross-section of Christians who believe that and agree with what we're doing. I think that would be what I'd say on that one. Um, really good one here. Given the recent synod vote to affirm LGBT wedding, LGB weddings and the subsequent creation of the Church of the Southern Cross, does this decision of the synod affect us? And if it does, what will we do if we're forced to follow the new Anglican viewpoint? Is there value in us becoming non-denominational to avoid being told what to do by a compromised church? Now, a lot of background information needed here. You're getting a lot of Anglicanism tonight. We've got a prayer book. We've got an Anglican schism. You know, it's all happening. Um, just to explain, so you might have heard during the week there's this thing called GAFCON. Uh, basically, what you need to think of it as, think of it as an emergency Anglican lifeboat. So the Anglican system is a quite a hierarchical system. You have bishops, archbishops, bishops, etc. And, uh, and, and they really, you kind of live under that hierarchy. And in certain dioceses, 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 I don't know if that's the plural, uh, they are seeking to affirm LGBT weddings and Bible-believing Christians feel very uncomfortable with that. And so they've kind of said, I can't submit to this structure. I still want to be Anglican and ecclesiology and how I think about things. So I need a lifeboat. And so they come over here. And, and now this new system has been set up so that you can still be Anglican, but feel like your beliefs are not being compromised. Now, it's worth noting that that hasn't yet created a, a schism. It's, a, it's, still, it's actually been set up partly by people who are still in mainstream Anglicanism. So they still believe that we should stay in this thing, in this diocese, as much as we can. And this is just a lifeboat, a, an extra thing. And so I think um, 
Uh, I think it's okay to have this GAFCON thing if people need that, but I would hope that we can stay within the Anglican Diocese as long as we can. Uh, it's worth noting that in Melbourne, uh, while it's not the most conservative diocese, uh, it's certainly not as liberal. And so I don't think they're anywhere close to permitting, uh, to affirming same-sex marriage. Now, if that did come along, then we would have to ask our questions about that. Did we feel comfortable with that? Uh, but I don't think that's and any kind of, that's not likely at any time soon. And so I think it's actually helpful for us to stay in this diocese as long as we can, because we uh, can have a positive influence uh, within that diocese and continue to do that work. Now, I think there is value though, when if you feel like you're completely compromised, uh, that might be the time that you feel like you need to leave. Good. How do we deal with it when people genuinely want to eradicate Christian beliefs due to conflict with their political goals? I think this is the reality of what's happening or is starting to happen right now. I think it's right for us to see this moment as a religious conflict. One of the things that's so dangerous and difficult about secularism is that it, it doesn't accept that it's a god, but it most clearly is. Uh, as the writer who talks about seculocracy, uh, that's what he describes it, this idea that everything needs to be about human thought and human thinking and there should be no supernatural, no Christianity, no Islam even, and all of those different things. It's got to be all about human-defined views. And, and we can see that it's completely trying to influence everything. Like there's a reason why uh, kindergartens are becoming places where certain values are being taught. It's because you, you want to get those values, you want to disciple the culture as much as you can. And actually, I think as Christians, we can learn from that. Are we discipling the culture around us? Are we as proactive as the secular atheists are? Like I actually think it's a real wake-up call for us. A lot of us are associated with Christian schools, for instance. And what's extraordinary in the States, for instance, there's a lot of ideology coming through in schools that is completely anti-Christian and anti-religion and secular. And it's amazing how they're bringing that through in every subject. It's worth us thinking about in our context, where we have freedom of religion, where we are teaching in Christian schools, are we really showing the beauty of God? You know, celebrating that God, when we're teaching maths, are we celebrating the God who provides order and structure for society? It's not just in psychology or uh, Christian life studies or something like that. It's in every place. So I think it's worth us uh, really trying to be proactive in how we disciple the culture. And then when other people are trying to disciple us, we need to resist that. We need to say, we need to point it out. We need to be bold enough to help people to see it, that there is no religion-free space in our culture. And I think it's important that we, we name that. So someone would say, oh, we can't have Islam or Christianity in politics, but just because they've got a little G God doesn't mean it's not a God. So I think we need to start naming that and really pointing that out and resisting that and pointing out the, the hypocrisies in that and the weaknesses in those worldviews. I think that's okay for us to do. All right. Does freedom, better do this as the last question, does freedom of religion have room in the workplace? What should it look like in secular workplaces? I think this has become a question that has no right to become a question. Um, as I was saying in that last answer, I feel like the secular worldview is trying to disciple and, and kind of create a, a, 
an ideological environment in every culture, in every place. And I don't think that actually needs to be the case. I don't think as Christians we demand that if you go to work at a mechanic so you have to have prayer time every morning or something like that. We wouldn't do that. And I just feel like in every kind of context, people are being expected to make big big ideological decisions. And I don't think that's appropriate. Like it's no place for a corporate organisation. They don't have to do a big colour me purple day or something like that to kind of affirm LGBT people. That's, that's not necessarily their thing. Like, if they are an LGBT organisation, that makes sense to do that. But if you're just a bank, what's that got to do with banking? It doesn't actually have anything to do with it. So I, I think we should argue strongly for uh, the right to, to not have beliefs imposed on us. I think that's the big key. It's about, I'm okay with people having different ideas, different religions. It's wherever it's imposed on us. We shouldn't impose it and neither should other people. There is... Human dignity needs to be the guiding principle, that each person has a conscience and we should follow that and feel comfortable in that and not feel like something else is being placed upon us that we reject or feel uncomfortable with. I was talking to someone last week, a a grade five kid. Uh, Their parents would discuss to me, you know, uh, she's got a friend at school who really wants, who started using different pronouns and they had this special day where they, everyone had to wear purple to affirm this and, and all of that. And this poor girl, she, she loves this friend. She really cares. Doesn't want to feel like she's being horrible to her friend. But she also feels really uncomfortable with this. In effect, she's being bullied into something. That shouldn't be the case. Shouldn't be the case in a school or in a workplace. People shouldn't be bullied into a certain religion. So as God's people, I think in the past... There have been times where Christians have bullied. Look at Christendom, the Crusades. They weren't exactly tolerant. But so um, we, need, we need to repent of that and make sure that we're not making the same mistakes, but also really encouraging other people to say, look, I've got my belief, you've got my belief, your beliefs. Let's just talk about it. Let's discuss it, but let's not impose it. All right, we better finish up. Musos are going to come up. Thanks for all you guys do. You're great. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we can talk about these things and keep asking questions. Lord, I really pray that you'll help us to apply this stuff in our lives. I pray for those who feel really profoundly uncomfortable in their workplaces, where they're making big calls, big decisions, trying to think through how to live out their faith and feeling uh, imposed on or bullied. Lord, I pray that that will stop. But in the meantime, as we pray for that, we, we do pray for wisdom that we'll know what to stand for, uh, what hills are important, and that we will always be a people of gentleness and respect, that people will know us as a people of love and faith, ultimately (laughs) a people of freedom. If there's one thing that this world wants, it's freedom. We seek it in the wrong things, we seek it in ourselves, but as your people, may we have it in you, a true and a deep and a profound freedom. Uh, That is just glorious. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.